You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, as we're going through this series on idolatry, what, what we're learning is that idolatry is really a relevant subject. It's alive and well. We can tend to think that idolatry is something that happened in primitive cultures where people burned incense, where people to to a god, they worship the sun god, they worship the rain god. Or maybe we even think it's something that's found in eastern religion today because in many eastern religion you could go to countries uh, in many places in the world today where there would be idol temples and people worshiping statues. And so we can think that's either primitive or perhaps that's more Eastern than, than what we live in. But the reality is the Western world uh, has its own set of idols. Uh, Frisco, Texas has its own set of idols. And so we are trying to uh, look at those and uncover them for what they are and then shine the light on the one who is greater than all, Jesus Christ, the king above all gods, all idols. The money idol, I think, is the most difficult to see in ourselves. I, I really believe it. Jesus talks about money uh, more than almost any other subject. Uh, and so if he's speaking about money problems and greed problems with peasant farmers in the first century, there's a chance one of us in Frisco might struggle with greed, covetousness, the money idol. Greed has a way of hiding itself from us and from gripping our hearts in ways that we don't recognize. And the reason is, it's particularly difficult to see in our own culture. It's particularly difficult to identify because we we sort of adopt a mindset from the socioeconomic culture that we live in and we look around just what's right around us, and we grade ourselves on a curve. We, we sort, of, uh, sort of have a scale based on our surroundings, and we make, uh, we make assessments about wealth and about greed and about who's trusting in uh, money uh, based on what we see around us. Uh, Pastor Scott Sauls, in, a, in, a, in his blog, wrote about this very thing when he wrote last year a column a blog post that included the following introduction. A friend once told me about his boss, a hedge fund manager who routinely drank bottles of wine valued at $25,000. My initial reaction to this information was to be appalled by the hedge fund manager's excess. I told my friend that I could never enjoy a glass of wine from such a costly bottle because I would, uh, because with each sip, I would think, gulp, there goes a new car. Gulp, there goes a month's pay for a nonprofit worker. Gulp, there goes an entire year of food for someone in a developing country. Gulp, how does anyone justify spending that kind of money on a bottle of wine? And then I remembered how easy it is to point the finger at someone else's excess. I remembered how easy it is to forget that I, yes, I, am one of the world's wealthiest and by relative terms most habitually excessive human beings. Over half the world lives on less than $2.50 per day. 
Over half the world lives on less than $2.50 per day. Sometimes I spend twice that on a cup of coffee and four times that on an appetizer. So my initial self-righteousness about the hedge fund owner led me to start asking what people living on less than $2.50 per day would think about all of my spending on iThings, on my Ford Mustang, on my children's education, on my dog's groomer, and the two amazing guitars that I own but will never be able to play better than a mediocre amateur. What would they think about my retirement account, those who live on less than $2.50 a day? What would they think of the $30 bottle of wine I shared with my wife and a few friends last weekend? Or the $200 pair of boots that I recently purchased for myself? By the way, he writes, this isn't about guilt at all. I hate guilt because guilt is a terrible motivator. Guilt doesn't stick like grace and love do. But sometimes it's good to do inventory. To have a bit of a gut check. To gain some perspective on things. And his next point, why... I must ask myself, am I so bothered by a $25,000 bottle of wine relative to my own income, and why am I not bothered, not at all bothered, by my $30 bottle of wine relative to the income of more than half the world's population? Greed, the money idol, is so blinding that we don't even conceive of it in our own world Yet it is so easy to see elsewhere. It's so hard to have an accurate perspective on money given the culture we live in. But Jesus is helping us to see this in the passage we're looking at today. And he's pointing us to something much better than money, stuff, and things. He's pointing us to something much better than temporal things. He's pointing us to eternal things and to himself in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, let's read this together. This is God's holy word. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and serve money. In this section of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus is addressing idolatry, though he doesn't use the word. He uses other terms. He doesn't use the word idolatry in what we just read, but he is emphasizing that following God requires an undivided heart. And he's saying you can't embrace God as Lord and rival lords at the same time. That's the problem, by the way, that we've encountered as we've studied through Judges. Israel wants to embrace Yahweh for some things, the God of the Bible, but they also want to, uh, they also want to embrace 
Baal and Ashtaroth to help them get pregnant and have children and to provide rain for their crops. So the problem is that they have a rival god to the god of the, their confession, the one they say they are, have allegiance to. And that's our problem as well. We can't serve God and other gods. And in this case, he's talking about money. And he, he uses three angles to define, and this is helpful. He uses three angles to de- help us get at idolatry. He talks about what we treasure. He talks about our vision for life, what we see. And he talks about what we serve, what we treasure, our vision and what we serve, our treasure, our vision, our service. We'll look at it that way. Our treasure, our vision, our service. And this gives us a vocabulary to kind of think about idolatry. First of all, he starts with our treasure. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. The bottom line is everyone in this room is created as a treasure hunter. We're all treasure hunters by nature. That, that's, that's who we are. We're all looking for something, for someone. We're all looking outside of ourselves for meaning and purpose and fulfillment. We're, we're all looking for something to lean on, and that's our treasure. The question is not, are we looking for treasure? The, the question is, what do we treasure? And here Jesus is critiquing sort of laying up treasures for ourselves, or as the NIV says, storing up treasures for ourselves. Now, let me be clear, just as Saul said, this isn't about guilt. Let me, let me also say, this is not, let me say what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying earthly stuff is evil. That's not biblical. That's a, that's a, a Greek, a Platonic Greek idea that, that earthly stuff is evil. He's not teaching some kind of dualism where material things are bad and spiritual things are good. You won't find that in the Bible. As a matter of fact, you'll find in the book of Ecclesiastes, God, in fact, says all things are created to be enjoyed for his glory. It's the actual opposite of material is bad and spiritual is good. The Bible doesn't teach that money is fundamentally evil. Money is neutral. The Bible teaches it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. Money is not evil. The love of it is the root of all kinds of evil, Paul writes. He's not teaching that saving money or having any possessions is wrong. In fact, the book of Proverbs commands us to save and to prepare for our future needs. In other words, the Bible doesn't call us to live an ascetic life, like like everything material is to be denied and only the spiritual embraced. You certainly won't find that at the festivals God called his people to uh, in, in the Old Testament, where there was celebrating and bounty. All of life is not fasting, there is also feasting, in other words. But what he's saying is we shouldn't treasure money, stuff, and things. There's a difference in having and treasuring. Now, we always want to credit ourselves as I just have and I don't treasure, but we should be a little bit more cautious and self-doubting perhaps on that. He uses treasure as a noun here, do not lay up for yourself treasures, but I think sometimes to use it as a verb helps us get at the idea of idolatry. In other words, what are you treasuring? What are you treasuring? That that helps us sort of get at the impulse of idolatry. What dream or hope are you treasuring? When you daydream, what's in that daydream? What treasure are you pursuing? What are you chasing to make you happy? What material thing or things do you feel like would give your life greater meaning, greater purpose? 
What type of material achievement do you need to feel like you've sort of made it in some way? What are are your if-onlys financially? Because whatever's on the other side of if-only, that's my idol. If only I have this much uh, in my account, I feel safe. If only I earn this much, I'll feel successful. If only I get that job providing this, then I feel like I will have status. Paul Tripp wrote just simply the best book, uh, and we're not back to selling resources, but we will. We will be back on that soon. Um, but he wrote the best book on, this, on the, what I'm talking about right now. It's called Redeeming Money, and it's by Paul Tripp with two Ps, T-R-I-P-P. Uh, you know, normally I say stay offline, but if you want to go download this on Kindle or Audible right now, do it. Uh, that'd be fine. But Redeeming Money by Paul uh, Tripp, T-R-I-P-P, uh, How God Reveals and Reorients Our Hearts. He, he writes about this. At one point he asked the question, if I watched the video of your last year, what treasure would I conclude you're after? Maybe with COVID we say if I watched two years ago. Last year was weird. But if I watched your last year, what treasure would I conclude you're after? See, money and things can provide us They're a God substitute that can provide us this sense of safety and security, status, this sense of ease, this sense of comfort, meaning, even rest. Now I can rest because I have this. Now I no longer need to trust God because I have what I need. Greed is blinding. We so easily attach our heart to the money idol, and we don't see it. But you know what? It's so easy to see in someone else, isn't it? So easy. Some of us are thinking, man, I'm glad so-and-so's here today, because they need this. I wish my neighbor was here. Man, I'm going to send the link of this to my son, my dad, my friend, whatever it is, because they really need this. We can't see it in ourselves, but we can see it in others. I read, a, I read about a pastor who was counseling a couple, and this would be perhaps no surprise. The reason they came in for counseling is because they have conflict over money. Money and sex, two biggest conflict topics uh, probably in marriage counseling. And the woman was presenting this. He is impossible to live with because he's a miser. He doesn't want to spend a nickel He's a tightwad. And that's ruining our marriage. While later he was meeting with the husband one-on-one. And the husband was saying, my wife, all she wants to do is spend money on new clothes and accessories to enhance her appearance. that's, That's all she cares about. So we can look at what he's saying and probably easily diagnose idolatry, right? So the deep idol in her heart is her image. How does she appear? She wants people to notice, recognize. She wants people to find her attractive and beautiful. She wants to appear. Maybe it's a status thing. But her deep idol is this image. I want others to think well of me. And her sort of surface idol is money. That's the thing. Spending that money gives her what she wants at a deeper level. Well, the pastor, in talking to the husband, 
revealed a deeper and surface idol in him as well. I mean, her idolatry was so clear to see, according to the husband. This is what the pastor said to the man. Do you see that by not spending, by not spending and not giving away anything, by socking away every penny, you are being just as selfish as your wife? You are spending absolutely everything on your need to feel secure, on your need to feel protected, on your need to be in control. In other words, you're not saving, you're spending on security, you're spending on control, you're spending on safety. The money idol had just as firm a grip on him, but it was easy to see in his spouse yet he could not see it in himself at all. We blindly put our hope in temporal things. We treasure them. She treasured her appearance, and her clothes are temporal. It is foolish to put our trust in temporal things because Jesus says temporal things are temporal. They're decaying. But he was also putting his trust in something temporal. He was trusting, he was treasuring a pile of dough that could make him feel safe, secure, and in control. He was hoarding to cover some deal in his heart instead of trusting God. Jesus says things are not a secure treasure, whether they're your clothes or your savings account. They're not a secure treasure because they're not really secure. Stuff decays. Look what he says. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Again, just a very different world than Jesus lived in, than we live in. Because they didn't have the boundaries from inside and outside that we have. They didn't have, for instance, secure closets for your clothing, so moths would get in and eat your clothes, or rats, or some kind of vermin. And, and if water got exposed to anything, it would, it would bring rust on what you have. There was, that things weren't as secure uh, as what we experience, and so stuff could decay. And if it didn't decay, he says, by moths or rust or whatever, it didn't decay, somebody could break in and steal it. They didn't have security, they didn't have cameras, They didn't have all that we have, so you were really vulnerable. And his point is that nothing is safe. Nothing was safe in the ancient world, but friends, nothing's safe in this world either. I was just thinking, I'm just kind of floating along. I've been pretty emotionally excited the past number of weeks. I feel like there's a breakthrough coming. Life started getting back to to normal. I don't want, you know, somewhat, maybe not for everybody, but for many people, People are coming back to church, for instance. We had, every week I see someone I hadn't seen in a year eye to eye, which is great. Just greeted someone that way right before the service. Love it. It's sunny outside. I mean, great. Just got a little bit of a, and then I just think, if I just reel back, could we all just for a moment go back about 13 months ago? When the stock market was dropping and unemployment was shooting through the roof, people were getting laid off, and nobody could leave their house? Like about 13 months ago, did everybody feel like, man, we're building our lives on what is permanent? Or was everybody feeling like, man, everything can change in a minute? It's good to go back and remember last spring. It's healthy. Because that's a dose of reality. Every, every new shirt, and don't you guys look wonderful today, but everything you're wearing, it's going to be thrown away or given away at some point. 
Every beater car was showroom new at one point. Your iPhone is going to grow and be junky and about as valuable as a new Samsung, okay? It's going away. That was idolatry in the pulpit right there. Can we just say, forgive me, that was Apple. I was taking the apple and taking a bite right there. That was all in good fun. But it will. Your new carpet, you can't keep it clean forever. It will stain and wear out. And if you live long enough, unless you're the ultra wealthy, if you live long enough, if you live really long, you will consume most of what, if not all, of what you have saved. That's why Proverbs 23 says this. Have an eternal perspective. Proverbs 23 says, Do not toil To acquire wealth, be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. It's just saying, don't fix your heart to what is transient. Don't fix your heart to what is transient. Your treasure shows where your heart is. And so build it on eternal treasure, Christ and his kingdom. He's going to go on and say in the next few verses, if you read on, he's going to say, seek first his kingdom and everything else you're worried about, it'll all get taken care of. That's what he says. You'll be fed, you'll be clothed. I'll take care of everything you need. Seek the rule and reign of Christ. Seek the lordship of Christ in your life, in your family, in our community and beyond. Seek his lordship and everything falls into place. Get your treasure right. What I lean on, what I hope in, get my heart right. So you've got to get your heart right to get your money right. We, we should have a budget, we should save, we should get out of debt, I believe in all, we should give, I believe in all that. But it doesn't start with a budget, it starts with what are you treasuring? It starts with the heart. Now it needs to move very quickly to our funds and how we manage them. But it starts with what do I treasure, what do I want do, I, do things rule me or do I use things for the kingdom? Do I leverage things? Do I steward things for his good purposes? Which includes enjoying gifts that God provides and using them so that others can enjoy the provision of the Lord as well. See, the reality is if our heart is fixed on him, we're free from the ups and downs and the fears and the anxieties that come with treasuring money and things. That's why the word Caleb brought, I think, is so powerful. He offers himself as the antidote. He didn't offer the ascetic life as the antidote. He offers himself the greater treasure, the eternal treasure. Next, he talks about vision. Look at this, verses 22, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So he's talking about our eyes, what we see, and there's really two systems of vision. There is physical sight, and he's saying as what you see physically determines how you move, where you go, what you do, it, it affects your whole body. How you see can affect your body. He's, he's saying there's, there's a spiritual sight as well. What, what sometimes the New Testament calls the eyes of our heart. So there's our spiritual sight. Just as physical sight directs our physical body, spiritual sight directs the direction of our life, directs the course of our life, steers our life. 
So what you see, what your spiritual vision is, is very important because you can be filled with light or filled with darkness based on your vision. But he's not talking, it's, he's talking about spiritual vision here ultimately. John Stott, uh, a commentator, describes it this way. He says, the argument seems to go like this. Just as your eye affects your whole body, so our ambition affects our whole life. It is all a question of vision. If we have physical vision, we can see what we are doing and where we are going. So too, if we have spiritual vision. If our spiritual perspective is correctly adjusted, then our life is filled with purpose and drive. But if our vision becomes clouded by the false gods of materialism and we lose our sense of values, then our whole life is in darkness and we cannot see where we're going. I believe that's exactly what Jesus is saying. If we don't see Christ, the whole thing he's talking about in this passage, his rule, his reign, his goodness, his provision, his kingdom, his daily bread, his love, his fatherly heart, if we don't see him as first and foremost and we see something else, we're chasing a different dream, a different vision, then we're going to stumble about in our, in our Christian life. Whether we realize it or not, we all have a spiritual vision. We all have, and it may, it may be subterranean. I mean, we may not know, we may not think about it, but we all have answers to the questions like, who am I? What am I here for? What's the purpose of my life? We all have some answer to what makes me happy. What am I after? What do I want in life? What do I want to be remembered as? What do I want my legacy to be? But, you know, what, am I, what, what are my goals in life? We all have something about that going on. And that's our vision. That's our spiritual vision. That's what we see. That's where we're headed. That's where we're going for. And, and what he's saying is that if you get your spiritual vision right, and in the context of this, if you read on, it's that Jesus is Lord and that he provides all that I need. If we have that right, then other things will fall into place. What is the good life? As I think about what do I want, what's the good life? How you define the good life, that's your vision for your life. What do I think the good life is? Jot that down. That's, that's what you see. That's what you're headed. And I've noticed that our vision always reveals itself in trouble. It's when I suffer, what really matters to me comes to the fore. I can say I'm about this, but poke me with suffering and we'll find out what I'm really about. I read this very interesting thing about someone's spiritual vision and how spiritual vision is not used, but you'll see it. Spirit, how this person's vision, how this person's treasure for stuff and things, and how this person's vision for God affected them in suffering. And, and it's about a, someone that many of you know or know of from the, uh, from the late 17th century. His name is Matthew Henry. And many of you, people have told me, I read in Matthew Henry's commentary. So he wrote a commentary of the whole Bible. I don't know what year it was published, late 1600s, early 1700s, I'm not sure. And it's still published today. So if you wrote a book in 1600s that people are still buying, uh, that, that's, it's probably fairly profound and fairly helpful. So he's a noted guy. Guy knew his Bible. Everybody's learning from Matthew Henry today. There'll be pastors all over the world saying, Matthew Henry says, all over the world. So Matthew Henry got robbed. And, and, and they took all he had. And when he was robbed, he wrote in his journal the following prayer the day he was robbed. Here it is. Or the evening he was robbed. He wrote this prayer. Lord, 
I thank you that I have never been robbed before. That although they took my money, they spared my life. That although they, although they took everything, it wasn't very much. Lord, I thank you that it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. Now, look at his vision for his life here. He's saying, Lord, I thank you that I've never been robbed before. A bad vision says, Lord, this is unfair. How could they take from me? What did I do to deserve this? Biblical vision is, God, you've sustained me my whole life. No one's ever stolen from me. Do you see the difference in a vision and how he, how he handles uh, the trial that he went through? He says, he goes on, he says, Lord, I, I thank you that, that although they took my money, they spared my life. So rather than, Lord, that's all I have. What am I going to do now? What are you, you, weren't you awake? Weren't you watching? How did you let this happen? God, get them. They're evil. Now, he, he, his response is very, very different. He says, uh, the Lord, that uh, they, they let me live. Lord, you have sustained me. I am living. You've given me more years to go on with you. That although they took everything, it wasn't much. So rather than cursing God, for you have not given me much, I live on so little when others have so much. God, why me? Why do they have so much? And I absolutely, he said, they took everything I have. But you know, one way to look at it is it wasn't that much to begin with. Lord, you'll sustain me. And I love this. Lord, I thank you that I was robbed, but I wasn't the robber. But for the grace of God, there go I. God, if you had not saved me and given me new life, I'd be out stealing. Do you see how his vision for material things and his, he treasures God. He treasures what God has provided. He treasures God's grace. He treasures God's work. He treasures all that God has done for him. And in his moment of suffering, man, does it come out powerfully. That's what we're talking about. Will your spiritual vision sustain you in suffering? Will your spiritual vision empower you to pass the test of suffering or what's harder, the test of prosperity? Which we read about Scott Saul's article at the beginning. It's what most of us experience on a world scale, on a historic scale. Most of all of us are living through the test of prosperity. And it is not what my neighbor says the good life is, not what my culture says the good life is, but what Jesus says is the good life that is to be my vision to sustain me. What's your vision? It will drive how you spend, how you save, how you give, what, you, what debt you take on. It will, it will drive, your vision will drive that, what you want, what you treasure it will drive where you're content. Where are you discontent? That's a way I can see the money idol. Where am I discontent? What do I think I want or need to be happy right now? Do I compare myself with others and what they have? And when I do, does it lead me to envy what they have? Or does it lead me to pat myself on the back and say, I'm doing pretty well? At least compared to them, I'm successful. Both are wrong. Rather, seek the kingdom and he'll provide every everything for me your treasure and your vision work together and when we treasure God we see everything else clearly when my eye sees him clearly I see everything else clearly and I can make decisions including financial decisions clearly 
Because I could be a great saver like the guy in the marriage illustration. I could be a great saver, not wasteful at all, and be a total idolater. The point is not only to stop treasuring stuff, but to treasure God more. And you will see everything else clearly. Lastly, service. So there's two treasures. One's temporal, one's eternal. There's two visions. One is an eye that brings light into the body, and one is an eye that brings darkness into the body. And lastly, there's two masters. He says, you can't serve uh, two masters. You'll hate one, love the other. Devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus says. We're all created to treasure something. We're all created to live with a vision for our lives, a purpose for our lives. We're all created to serve something or serve someone. It's true. No one, and many people, we serve ourselves or we serve some other idol. But we're all created with a capacity and and the, the natural bent towards worship and service of someone outside of ourselves. It's God that we're created to serve. But we fill that with so many other things, including our money. And so he's saying you can't serve competing masters. In other words, I can't say Jesus is my Lord, but my security is my bank account. That's what Israel did. Yahweh is a God who delivered us, but man, we need crops. Baal is our God for that. I can't say Jesus is my Lord, but my hope for the future is my retirement account. I can't say Jesus is my Lord, but my joy is when I make this number on the salary. When the check is this number, then I'll be happy. I can't say that. I can't say Jesus is my Lord, but my goal is to have uh, live in this neighborhood or drive that car, as if that is the answer to what I need. I can't say Jesus is my Lord, and anything else is my greatest treasure. One person said it this way, until Jesus is first in your finances, Jesus isn't first. That's what it means when he says, I can't, you cannot serve God in money. It means that if Jesus is not first in my finances, then Jesus is not first. But here's the good news. So that's a sting. I get it. That's, that's convicting to me. But the good news about the conviction is that we have the privilege of having Jesus first. You don't have to have money first. You can have Jesus first by his grace, through his spirit. It's a call to repent from our culture's way of thinking. It may be a call to any number of sacrifices in our life. But think of what he offers us. I mean, who wouldn't want to trade something that wears out, gets moth-eaten, rat-infested, rusted, or stolen for a treasure that lasts forever. Who doesn't want to make that deal? What financial person says the ROI on that offer is just not very good? That is an unbelievable offer the Lord makes to us, that he gives us himself. Who wouldn't trade that? Who wouldn't trade stumbling around in the dark, not just grasping for something to give my life meaning, for light, which gives me a clear path and a promise of purpose and abundance in my life by following the purposes of God. Who wouldn't trade that? Jesus isn't squeezing people here to, to torture them. Jesus is making the best offer imaginable. You can have Christ. We can have God of, uh, of eternity Who wouldn't want the God who created everything over the stuff that was created? In our right mind, who wouldn't want that? 
And that's what this is about. The call of the passage is not simply to stop treasuring money, but to treasure God more. And here's the promise. Think about this. As we treasure him, we find security in being his children. And the father promises to provide for his children always. The father provides for his children. He will meet our needs. That's what we receive when we trust him. If we trust the money God, here's what we're left with. A constant life of anxiety. Wondering if we'll have enough. I don't know if the money God's fickle. I don't know if the money God's going to shine on me or steal from me. I don't know. I mean, I, we could have given, I could have bring quotes, we, the, uh, you know, in, uh, interviews of the richest people in the world. We all know the stories, how they're so often the most miserable people of the world. If we find contentment in him, we can be joyful in all of life's situations. If my contentment is Christ, he's not changing. My situation's changed, Paul says. I still have a joy. I still have a contentment because of Christ. But if we base our life on the money God, there is a constant discontent because I'm comparing myself with others. I'm always wanting more. I'm never satisfied. The money God is never satisfied. No idol satisfies. It always wants more. You know, I read this quote. It may be apocryphal, but it's a good sermon illustration. Uh, But it's it's on the internet. But there's this quote, which I've read multiple times, so I think it's true, but it's by John Rockefeller. And I did a little research on him. John Rockefeller, at his peak, his wealth was 3%, it was 3% of the gross domestic product of the entire country. 3% of the GDP, his personal wealth. The richest person on the planet right now, he, in today's dollars, he had three times more than what they have. So his wealth is uh, beyond his oil. He made it in oil. His wealth is beyond what anyone can imagine. And the line is, he was asked, how much money does it take to make you happy? And his answer was, a little more. A little bit more. It's a way that the money idol never satisfies. We can find our hope, our future hope in Christ And then we're free to give of our resources and use our money with confidence that he will supply all of our needs. But if we serve the money, God will be tempted to hold on because we are fearful for what may come tomorrow. Yes, we should responsibly save. Yes, we should be prudent. That's all over the Bible as well. But when our hands aren't gripped by the money, God, we can be free to live our life according to God's purposes and use his resources, steward them, rather than be ruled by them, which is slavery. Who wants to be enslaved to the master money versus the good, loving shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ? While the money God tempts us to hold on, Jesus frees us. If we find our identity in Christ, our success and our fruitfulness in life comes from following him. It doesn't come from any number that's on a paycheck, that's in a bank account, that is the value of my house. 
It doesn't come from a number. It comes from being his child. But if I put my identity in the money, God, then I will ever be insecure about how do I measure up, how far along should I be. Am I, making, am I at the place I thought I would be in my dreams at this stage in life, living by regret, living by chasing more, living by how do I compare? And if we make a ton of money, and we have all of our needs met, and a lifetime of savings in front of us, you know what can happen to us? The greatest curse of all. We totally lose our vision for our need for God. The worst place to be imaginable is not seeing your need for God. And when I never have to think about the prayer, give us this day my daily bread, when I have all the security lined up for myself, and I don't see myself as needy before God, I am in deep danger. It's a curse, not a blessing. The gospel lens changes everything. The way we, our heart is changed is by the gospel. It's coming to realize that Jesus, who was rich with the wealth of all of heaven, became poor for our sake, is what Paul writes in Corinthians. He entered the brokenness of our humanity. Jesus, the creator who spoke everything into existence, who had all of the heavenly eternal wealth, came and was born in obscurity for you embraced an itinerant ministry with no place to lay his head for you and for me, stripped naked of all his possessions, which were not many, beaten, mocked, and nailed to a tree, the perfect son of God died suffering the judgment for our greed. Jesus died on the cross for my envy, for my covetousness, for my pride in my possessions. He died for my lust for more. He died because I trust in things. He died because the money God seemed more a realistic bet than laying it all and playing my card and going all in on Jesus. He died for that. And three days later, he rose from the dead, crushing the power of idolatry, crushing the power of slavery to money, breaking the chains off the money, God, for any who would come and freely receive the treasure of eternal life and receive the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So that we are free not to be owned by our money, but to be owned by the loving shepherd who provides all things. This is the answer. It has been gripped by the gospel, what he has done for us. It's only then that we begin to see clearly. I mean, that's the moment. We can't see. The moment we get the gospel, we, we, we get a vision that we never had before for the goodness of God to serve him who made us so that we don't waste our lives storing up temporal treasures that become old junk. And instead, enjoy him as our treasure today and forever so that the things we do have, we can enjoy. So that the things he does provide, which may indeed be nice, we can share. So that the things he does provide for us can be used for hospitality to include someone else, to love others, to give to others, to live with a life of gratitude, to live very nimble and free saying, yeah, this is mine right now, but Lord, you could say give this to someone else and I'd be happy to do that because that's not my God, you are. To have some stuff and things, to have some experiences and for them all to return worship to the Lord God rather than chasing the money God. Well, I'm done. I I can't, uh, this is a visionary message. I can't give practicals. There's no spreadsheets. 
in this sermon. There's no how-tos, but I'm going to leave you with this. If you would like to speak with someone on our financial discipleship team to get some help, some help with your heart, this will help your heart. Read Redeeming Money by Paul Tripp. Read this book and then get some help with a spreadsheet. Or you maybe don't use a spreadsheet. Get some help on a yellow pad, whatever it is. And you can email Tim Payne, and he will connect you with a member of our financial discipleship team that will sit down with you and help you so that you don't have to live. You don't have to live the way you've been living. But God can free you by what we're talking about this morning and then give you the tools to walk out your freedom, enjoying the grace of God with a clear vision for why he created you and why he saved you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are better than the money, God. No comparison. You are the God of all gods. You own everything. You created everything. You redeem everything. You give us all good things to be enjoyed and to be celebrated. You've provided for us abundantly in the world we live in, in this nation, this city. We pray that you would help us to be good stewards, faithful stewards of what you've provided. We pray that you would help us to look to you and trust you alone, our God. Lord, may you grow in our vision. And may all other false securities, false hopes, false status symbols, false identities be crushed under the blazing glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us grace to seek first the kingdom and would you provide everything else as you promised in Matthew 6. In your name we pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org. 